Well, most of you know that I am from the great state of Nebraska. If you've been here very long at all, you've heard me mention what I like to call my homeland, Nebraska. Tacoma is my home, and Nebraska is my homeland. And where I lived in Nebraska, in the western part of the state, was right on the border of irrigated farmland to the north and what's called dryland wheat area to the south. And we were literally right on the border. So north of our house was cornfields and south of our house was wheat fields. And we had through our yard running this little small irrigation ditch. It was only about this wide and it only had water in it during the summer when the water commission was trying to get water to a certain you know, part of a certain farmer's farm so that he could get water down the rows between the corn stalks so that they could grow because there's not enough water in western Nebraska to grow corn similar to eastern Washington. And so this little irrigation ditch that ran through our yard had water in it, you know, two, three months out of the year. And in western Nebraska, there's not very many trees unless the trees are near a water source. Well, one year my dad planted probably 15 trees in our yard on the west side of our house to prevent or to protect our house from blowing snow and wind and it gives shade, of course, in the late afternoon and that sort of thing. And so he planted these trees there and he put in the ground this little small hose with holes in it to irrigate the trees. Well, the trees that were closest to this little irrigation ditch, no joke, they probably grew three times as fast and three times as large as all the other trees, even though they were on that little drip line. And I remember in high school, my dad pointing at those trees and saying, that's a great illustration of Psalm chapter 1, which we're going to get to here in a minute. But also in western Nebraska, of course, we had all this corn and all this wheat, and the way that corn and wheat are harvested now is with a big, giant, very expensive machine called a combine. And a combine does three things. A combine reaps, right? So we know the picture of the Grim Reaper, and he's got the very long, big sickle, which, of course, you would, you know, swing through, through the, the crops in the field and cut them down. Nobody does that anymore. You drive through the field with a combine, and it reaps the, the crop, and then it threshes the crop, which you used to do. You would put all the, the stalks of, you know, corn or wheat in a bundle that you call a sheaf, bringing in the sheaves, Right? And so you'd bring these sheaves to the threshing floor and you would get like clubs and beat on these things or you would have livestock just tread all over them to break apart the heavier seed from the rest of the lighter straw and something called chaff. And then there's the final process called winnowing where you take this big pile of mixed stuff and with a fork you just throw it up in the air and the wind blows away the lighter stuff the straw and the chaff, and then the seed falls to the ground, and so you pick that up, and then you have your wheat or your corn. Well, combine does all that stuff for you. But when you're watching a combine go through the field, it has a big, long arm that's shooting the seed into a truck, but it also, like out the back, is just blowing all this stuff, and that's called chaff. So growing up in western Nebraska, 
I had these very, very vivid pictures of a tree planted by a stream of water and how prosperous it is and chaff. And so we find those two things today in Psalm chapter 1. And Psalm chapter 1 gives us a picture of the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked. This ends up being a repeated motif throughout the entire book. And basically the question that Psalm 1 is asking, and then in turn the entire book of Psalms is asking, is this. Given all the opportunities and obstacles of life, okay, given all that life has to offer, given all that you could choose to go after and pursue and try to attain, given all the opportunities of life, but also given all the obstacles of life, all the suffering, all the pain, all the turmoil, and all the brokenness of life, given all the obstacles and opportunities, which path should you choose? That's the question. Which path should you choose? The path of the righteous or the path of the wicked? And not surprisingly, the conclusion that both Psalm 1 and the whole book of Psalms comes to is trusting God and obeying God is the best way to live. Trusting God and obeying God is the best way to live. Given all the opportunities that there are in life, given all the obstacles that there are in life, trusting God and obeying God is truly the best way to live. Now, most of you have heard that before. But I want to let you in on a little secret this morning in terms of my prayer coming into this. Because as a pastor, as a teacher, as a preacher, part of the hard work is praying and saying, Holy Spirit, what do you want us to hear today? What do you want us to hear today? And so I've got a couple prayers that I want to share with you. First of all, my prayer is that if there's anybody here today who is either leaning towards the path of the wicked or fully in the path of the wicked, for all the reasons that you've chosen, you think that's the best way to live, I'm praying that today the Holy Spirit would wake you up and convict you and lead you to repentance and bring you to the other path. Jesus says there's only two paths. One is wide and easy, and the other is narrow and hard. And I'm praying that the Spirit of God would wake somebody up today and say, I'm not going to go down the path of the wicked anymore. Some of us are kind of peeking around the corner. Wow, this path is hard. I want to see what this has to offer. And the Spirit of God is saying, no, I'm going to call you today. I'm going to, by the God's grace, the Spirit of God through the Word of God, I hope He convinces you that walking the way of the righteous is the best way to live. Now, there's a lot of you who are already, like, you're fully on board. You're like, great, that's where I'm at. What's God got for me today? Well, I think he's got this. For those of you who are on the path of the righteous, and you're fully convinced that's the best way to live, it's amazing how consistent in the scriptures there's this theme that says, you know what? Endure, persevere, stay at it, keep with it. And here's the punchline. Because it's worth it. It's worth it. And I know there's somebody here today 
who needed to come here and hear me say, it's worth it. It is worth it for you to continue to grind and continue to get up every day and say, Jesus, I trust you even though it's really hard. It's worth it. And I pray that the scriptures make that obvious to all of us today. Okay, last week, I want to give a quick review of the overview of the book of Psalms, and I promise this is going to be quick. We talked about the musical Les Mis, Les Miserables, and we talked about how Les Mis is a poetic reflection on a period in French history. You can read a history book, or you can go watch Les Mis. Either way, you're going to learn something about French history. Well, the Psalms is a poetic reflection on Israel's history, and in particular, God's relationship with Israel and the covenants made with Abraham, David, Abraham, Moses, and David. Okay, so, so that's what's going on in this book. It's saying, through all these amazing songs, the, the, he, or the Greek word for psalms, or the Greek word psalms literally means songs, so it's this great piece of uh, musical work that is reminding us of God's faithfulness to his people, and it is saying, God is worth your trust. Now, I want to give you a little information today about the structure of the book. I didn't give you this last week, so take a look. Here's, here's how the book is structured. If you think of it merely as a hymn book or a song book or a prayer book, you're going to miss a lot of what's going on here because there's this genius structure to the book. The book was written, in a sense, over like 1,000 years of history. You've got from Moses all the way to probably someone like Ezra or Nehemiah who wrote some psalms. And then at the end of all that, someone compiled all this stuff, and that person had an agenda, and it was, of course, to give this poetic reflection on Israel's history. But all scholars agree on this stuff. There's a lot of nuance in those books, and people disagree and arguing about you know, how those books are arranged and blah, blah, blah. But this is what everybody agrees on that Psalms 1 and 2 provide an introduction to the whole book. I thought we were going to do both Psalms 1 and 2 today. It's a bridge too far. It's not going to happen. We're going to do Psalm 1 today. Randy's going to do Psalm 2 tomorrow. That's the introduction to the book. And then maybe you've noticed as you've read through the Psalms on your own that at the end of Psalm 41, it says book 2. And then at the end of Psalm 72, it says book 3. Right? Well, that's because the compiler, the editor, who grabbed all these awesome songs and put them together, like most scholars think it was probably gradual. Like somebody did book one, and then somebody did book two, and then at the end, somebody put them all together. But if you read the last psalm in each one of those books, it's called a seam psalm, you'll find that there's a very clear kind of doxology at the end of them. So whoever's putting all this together, like added that stuff to say like, this was a great book, amen and amen. That, that kind of thing, is at the end of each one of those psalms, okay? And then we get to the conclusion, Psalm 146 through 150, and that is this climax of praise, this climax of praise, okay? So all that structure is what helps us understand that this big theme is that the psalms is a poetic reflection on Israel's history and especially God's relationship with David, Real quick reminder of the themes we saw last week, and then we'll get into Psalm 1. We noted that there's two main types of psalms. In all these 150 psalms, there's two main types of psalms. 
psalms of lament, and psalms of praise. And so the book of Psalms teaches us how to pray, how to grieve before God, and it also teaches us and exhorts us and even commands us to sing and praise and shout and lift up our hands to the Lord. We're going to talk more about that authentic enthusiasm that we're hoping that the Spirit produces in us. Secondly, we said the Psalms reveal the character and nature of Yahweh, the one true God. This is a story about history, which means it's a story about God, and the main point is trust him. And then finally, the Psalms look forward to Jesus, the Messiah King, since God made a promise to David that one of his descendants would always sit on his throne. It has his very future uh, forward look towards Jesus Christ, the Messiah King, and the point there is hope in him. All right, Psalm chapter 1. Megan Cornish is going to come and read Psalm chapter 1. We're purposely not going to put it on the screen because it's poetry. And poetry is meant to be, to be listened and taken in. If you have your Bible open, you want to read along, that's awesome. But I thought, let's not put it on the screen. Megan, go ahead. Thank you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thank you, Megan very much. So Psalm 1 introduces us to some key themes that are going to recur throughout the whole book. These are like sub-themes of the book. I just want to mention these briefly and then we'll dive right in to the text because keep in mind Psalms 1 and 2 provide us with this introduction to the whole thing. So whoever organized the book of Psalms stuck this at the beginning because Psalms has this amazing balance between God's work and God's dealings with an individual and God's work and God's dealings with a people. And maybe you'll recall from last fall we talked about how the Bible upholds sort of two different perspectives on the gospel. There's an individual gospel that says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? That God knows how many hairs are on your head and that he knit you together in your mother's womb and that God loves you and that Jesus died for you and if you trust in Jesus, you will live forever. That's the individual gospel. And historically, in evangelicalism, that's been kind of the main message. But there's also this corporate gospel that God loves his people and that Jesus died to make for himself a people called by his own name, a people who are his precious possession, who are, who are to be a kingdom of priests to the world. And Psalms does this amazing job of emphasizing both of those things over and over. Psalm 1, no surprises about the individual side of that. God's individual relationship with people, specifically through the covenant. Covenant's a big theme. God's justice is a big theme and that God will protect and bless the godly, and that in the end, in the end, God is going to make all things right. Okay, so those are just some big themes that come through the book. Now, 
Let's get into this contrast of the righteous and the wicked. I just want to show you this slide of the whole psalm here. And you can, I color-coded it, obviously. The red is about the wicked, and the yellow is about the righteous, or the one who is blessed. Just to give you a visual picture of the contrast that exists throughout the entire psalm. There's nothing in the psalm that isn't about one or the other. And it's not 100%, here's the righteous, and now here's the wicked. The contrast goes back and forth and back and forth throughout the entire psalm. And in verses 1 and 2, we find this contrast between the righteous and the wicked and their posture towards God. How do the righteous and the wicked differ in their posture towards God? Well, the wicked, they walk in the way of sinners, which means they reject God's law, they reject relationship with God, they rebel against Him. They say, like Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Right? They don't want to listen to God. It's that, it's that part of all of us that we still feel and we still grapple with that stands up inside of us and says, no one's going to tell me what to do. You may be sitting on the outside, but standing on the inside. Say, no one's going to tell me what to do. And these people are scoffers, which means not only do they reject God, but they actually mock God. They say, God doesn't care, God doesn't know, God's not even real. There's a scoffing against God. And in contrast to that is the righteous who doesn't fall prey to that, but instead delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. What the psalmist is really trying to show us here is there's a very different heart posture Okay, this is not merely about behavior. This is not that bad people do bad things and good people do good things. This is the righteous are receptive towards God. They're, they're submitted to God. They're, there's a trust for God. There's even a desire for the ways of God versus the wicked who say, I don't care about God. I don't want God telling me what to do. He, he can be in this little tiny corner of my life, but he can't have all of my life. That's the kind of heart posture that the psalmist is talking about. And so, and I, I want to clarify one other thing. This is not mainly about who you hang out with. This is not to say that the righteous never hang around the wicked. This is to say like, what's informing your thinking, and who are you submitted to? Those are the big questions. What's informing your thinking, and who are you submitted to? And the thing that is informing the thinking of the righteous, the thing that the righteous are submitted to, is the law of the Lord. The law here, this is the Hebrew word Torah, which can be used to talk about only the Mosaic law code in you know, Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It can be used to talk about the first five books of the Bible. It can be used to talk about the whole Old Testament. Commentators I read seem to think that this is talking about, when it says the law of the Lord, it's talking about the word of God. Anything that comes out of God's mouth, 
the righteous person delights in. The righteous person delights in the law of the Lord. Why do they delight in the law of the Lord? Because it's the law of the Lord. It's not merely the guidebook for godly living. It drives me crazy when I hear people say that the Bible is like a guidebook for your life. It drives me crazy. That's not what the Bible is. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a book that reveals the character and nature of God and tells you his story. It's thoroughly relational. It's an invitation to get to know God. And then, of course, oh, by the way, in relationship, you're going to learn how to live. But don't reduce the Bible to a guidebook. That is not why the righteous delights in the law of the Lord. The righteous delights in the law of the Lord because it's through the law of the Lord, the word of God, that they pursue intimacy and relationship with God. And so my question for you is what's informing your thinking and what are you submitted to? What's informing your thinking and what are you submitted to? Do you delight in the law of the Lord? Do you delight in God's word? I mean, think about that word. Like, just think for a second. We won't do dialogue around this. I'm going to ask you a different question in a minute. But what do you delight in? That's probably a fairly short list. Like, what do you delight in? What are the things or people or relationships that you would put on that list? What do I delight in? I mean, that's, that's a special word. Later on in the Psalms, by the way, it says that God delights in his people. That's what God delights in. He delights in you. What do you delight in? Well, you cannot delight in that which you do not know. You cannot delight in that which you do not know. You cannot delight in something that you're totally ignorant of. And so what does the righteous do? In order to foster knowledge, to foster delighting in, to foster intimacy with God, what does the righteous do? The righteous meditates on God's law day and night. Constantly feeding themselves with the word of God. Why? Because to delight in God's word is to delight in God. As long as we're seen as a relational book, a relational story. So I would love to hear, because I know there's a lot of folks in this room who do delight in the law of the Lord. And it, it works itself out in your life. We get one little picture here of how that can work itself out. Meditate on his law day and night. But I would love to hear from some of you, what are some ways that you have delighted in the law of the Lord? What are some ways you have delighted in the law of the Lord? So Chris has had a little more time on her hands because she's retired and set some goals for how she wanted to use her time, ways she wanted to grow, want to read her Bible and pray more. And she put it in terms of priority at the beginning, top of the list and the beginning of the day. And so that's a great way to, to delight in the law of the Lord. What else? Don't be afraid to brag on God's grace in your life. Okay? Don. Great, so seeing how the Spirit of God shows us the relevance of His Word day-to-day -day, in different relationships that we're in, how it can craft our prayers. Okay, good. What else? What are some ways you've delighted in the law of the Lord? So part of the way we delight in the law of the Lord is by observing the fruit that God's Word produces in our lives when we respond to the Spirit's conviction 
and we walk in obedience, and then we see the fruit of that in our lives and in our relationships, and we go, oh, that's because of God's word and how it's shaping me and playing itself out in my life. That actually makes me delight more in the law of the Lord. Rachel makes things in response to the word of God or makes things that help her meditate more on the word of God or in response to the teaching of the word of God, making things that other people can enjoy to love and serve them. That's a great way to delight in the law of the Lord. So you can delight in God's word together with another person in whom you delight. And so find someone whom you delight in who also delights in the law of the Lord and then together you experience the word of God and, and both of your delights will increase for God's word and for each other, okay? So that's, that's another great example. I'm just gonna share one. By the way, I wanted to do this because like, I could have shared a few things, ways I delight in the law of the Lord, but I thought we got a room full of people who love Jesus and love God's word and I just thought some, some good ideas would get shared out there among you. So thank you, those of you who shared those things. That's a good way for us to kind of minister to one another and encourage one another and spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Um, One of my favorites that I've talked about a lot before is scripture memorization. I call it the three by five gospel. You get a three by five card and you pick your verse or your two verses or your three verses and you write on your three by five card and you keep it wherever you keep your toothbrush. And then when you're brushing your teeth, hopefully two times a day. Um, I don't work for a dentist. That's just it's just good self-care. Um, if you, I'm guessing you're not already using your toothbrushing time in a very strategic way. If you are, please keep doing that. But if you're not, you're probably thinking about whatever you're going to do. Get or reading something, maybe got your phone in your hand. Just get a three by five card in front of your face. And read it over and over and over again. Meditate on it. Chew on it while you're brushing your teeth. I promise you in a week you'll have it. Maybe two weeks. I'm getting a little older. It's taking me a little longer. My 40-year-old brain doesn't work like my 24-year-old brain did. But that is an amazing way to delight in the law of the Lord. I cannot tell you how often, like at night, bedtime, brush my teeth. The word of God, it lifts my spirit. It lifts my soul. That is the best way to end the day. Honestly, a little bit of meditation on the Word of God. You, your head will hit the pillow lighter than it was five minutes ago. Okay, so what we're talking about here is this abiding practice of reading the Scriptures. Reading the Scriptures, delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on God's Word, memorizing God's Word is how we foster intimacy with Jesus Christ. It's absolutely indispensable. It's totally key. And guess what? If you have the Spirit of God in you, submitting to God and His Word is actually what you want to do. It's what you want to do. So I want to encourage you, if you have the Spirit of God, just give in to your deepest desires. Because your deepest desires are good. And many of us who grew up in church are still stuck on Jeremiah's verse about the heart being desperately wicked and evil above all things. But you have a new heart that God gave you. And that new heart wants to sing the scriptures and like rip the pages out and eat them. 
That's what the Spirit of God wants to do. So I want to encourage you, like, like feed that desire. Feed that desire. You want to obey and trust God because you have the Spirit in you. That's what you want to do. Now, real quick, how does this impact our life on mission? Because of what it says about don't walk with the wicked and stand with the sinners and sit with the scoffers. Listen, we always have to interpret the Bible in light of the whole Bible. If I pick out one verse and say, hey, the Bible says this, I can end up doing some really crazy things. And saying some crazy things are right and some crazy things are wrong. You just end up in a weird spot if you just pull one little verse out, okay? So you always have to interpret it in the light of the whole. And what does the whole Bible say? Love your enemies. Love your neighbor. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. So this is not promoting isolation or never hanging out with people who don't know Jesus or people who are on a path of destruction. But what it does mean is this. You delight in the Lord and then you enter into the world with a mindset and a heart that is fixed on delighting in Jesus Christ. So basically, like, you got to make your decision about how you're going to engage with all the people around you. Because if you don't, now we're back to the first question, what's informing your thinking and who are you submitted to? If that's hanging in the balance, you're going to read the news and watch TV and watch movies and listen to music and talk to friends and buy stuff with all this perspective that's like teetering back and forth between, I love God and I want to serve him and I don't give a rip what he says. So you got to sort of like center yourself and go, I'm delighting in the law of the Lord. I love Jesus. I'm abiding in him. He's with me all the time. I'm meditating on his word. Now I can engage in these relationships and guess what that's going to do? Like you're abiding in Jesus. You're delighting in the law of the Lord. It's going to spill out. It'll have to spill out, which is exactly what missionaries are designed to do. You take, you take what you've got, the very presence of, of Jesus and your love for him, and you enter into a culture, and it just spills out. And it spills out with love, and it spills out with patience, and it spills out with kindness, and tons of grace, not judgment and calling people out on all their stuff all the time, okay? So that's how this works together. All right. Now, now, that's the longest one, I promise. We won't spend that much time on verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. But verses 3 and 4, after showing us this contrast between the perspective of the righteous and the wicked, now we get a picture of what the righteous and the wicked are like. And here we're going to dive into a little bit of Hebrew poetry, because I told you this is an introduction to the whole book. But before we do that, I want to give you an example, a really good example, of English poetry. Because if we're going to talk about Hebrew poetry, I thought we should kind of start where we're at, which is English poetry. So I've asked Jess Euler to come up and read an amazing poem written in the English language. And it is a great example of probably the, the two characteristics of English poetry that all of us are most familiar with. And that is rhyme and meter. Rhyme and meter. Okay? Little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet, eating her curds and white, Right? So rhyme and meter, we know that. So this is an amazing example of rhyme and meter in English poetry. So this is called The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus, and it was written in 1883. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, 
with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Thank you, Jess. I literally get chills hearing that. That uh, poem, I believe, reflects what we have come to call the foreign policy of the kingdom of God, which is for God to love the world. And that poem, of course, is from uh, the Statue of Liberty. It was written for uh, the Statue of Liberty back in 1883. And I thought it was a great example of rhyme and meter and also I think a timely reminder of God's heart for the nations, which regardless of uh, who our president is, who our secretary of state is, regardless of whether it's 2018, 2008, 1998, or 1988, the church of Jesus Christ lives under the foreign policy of the kingdom of God, which says, we love whoever is here, however they got here, and we want to tell them about Jesus Christ. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and God sent his followers to go and make disciples of all the nations. And if the nations are here, our job is to make disciples with grace and love. So, Hebrew poetry is very different from English poetry. Even in Hebrew, it doesn't rhyme, though occasionally you might find a little play on words. I want to talk about a few different elements of Hebrew poetry here as we look at verses 3 and 4, which contrast what the righteous are like and what the wicked are are like. So we've got a picture of the psalm here again. Well, not a picture, but the whole psalm shown here. And what is going on here in this is, uh, this is called, the way this psalm is structured, it's called a chiasm. A chiasm. And the point of a chiasm, well, the way you see a chiasm is you've got similar stuff going on at the top and at the bottom. So you see at the top, you've got the way of sinners and the seat of scoffers. And then very similar ideas at the bottom, the congregation of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Okay, so very similar ideas. And then you've got this idea of standing and then the very same idea down here, okay? So when you see those similar ideas at the top and bottom, what it's, what it's doing is it's like an arrow pointing to the middle, saying what's going on in the middle is really the most important part. This is a chiastic structure. It's throughout all the Psalms. Not, not every single Psalm, but throughout the whole book. So it's highlighting this middle portion, saying this is what the righteous and the wicked are like. Okay, another thing, another Hebrew poetry element is called parallelism. Okay? Let's see the next slide here. Parallelism. Look up at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
He's not trying to say those are three different things. He's actually saying it's the same idea. And so this is called synonymous parallelism, where they basically say the same thing over and over again, which what do you suppose that means? Emphasis. When you repeat an idea over and over in different ways, it's for emphasis. Okay, here's another one in the middle. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. It's not, you're not supposed to really dig into those two separate ideas. It's kind of the same thing over and over again. Okay, then the last one is one we're familiar with. It's an element of Hebrew poetry called simile. Simile. And simile uses the word like or as to compare two things. So, what are the righteous like? What does the text say? Like a tree planted by streams of water. We have a picture, I think, of a tree planted by a stream of water. This is not my backyard in Nebraska. Just to be clear, it's not nearly that nice. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. What an amazing picture, right? Of the blessedness of trusting God and submitting to God and obeying God. Who doesn't want to be like a tree planted by a stream of water, bearing fruit in a season? That sounds, I don't know a person who would say, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be like that. Especially when you consider the other thing that the wicked are like, which is chaff. Okay? So here's a picture of uh, a woman winnowing. Okay? So this has already been... uh, been harvested and and winnowed, and now they're actually, or threshed, now they're winnowing. So literally, they just throw that stuff with the fork. They just throw it up and down, up and down, up and down, and the wind blows away all the chaff. And what's chaff? It's useless, and it has no value. That's what it's saying. It's just kind of a sting, but in the end, God's saying the life that the wicked lives, it doesn't amount to anything. It adds up to nothing. I think we have one more picture. And here's the difference between wheat and chaff. You've probably heard that phrase, separate the wheat from the chaff. And there's some wheat on the bottom and chaff on the top, which the wind blows away. Matthew chapter 3, 11 and 12, Jesus uses this very same metaphor, or actually John the Baptist. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so the psalmist is using these poetic elements, chiasm and parallelism and simile, to say to you and I, trusting God and obeying God is the best way to live. He's using graphic pictures. Tree planted by streams of water or chaff that gets blown away. Which one do you want to be? And then finally, verse 5 and 6, we have the outcome of their life. The outcome for the righteous, according to the psalm, is blessing, prosperity, and life. According to the psalm, the outcome for the wicked is a fleeting life, a life that doesn't amount to anything, death, perishing, and separation from God. 
I was reminded of Proverbs 14, 12 that says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, he swore believes in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. There's the contrast again between perishing and life. And the psalmist is going back, I think, to Deuteronomy chapter 28, where Moses holds up the law and he says, look, if you obey, you will be blessed. And he rattles off this long list. I mean, it's literally down to like, your cows are going to have lots of calves. And your kneading bowl is always going to be filled with dough. And your olive tree is going to produce lots of olives. It's super specific. And then he flips it and he says, if you disobey, all these curses are going to come on you. Blessing and curse. And the list of curses is just as specific and it's about three times as long. And I think the psalmist is going back and he's saying, look, remember what Moses said. If you obey, here's what's going to come on you because you're my people and we entered into this covenant. And if you don't, here's what's going to come on you. What's crazy about this is that God's people, because of the Abrahamic covenant, they were in an unconditional relationship with God. God promised to bless his people in the Abrahamic covenant regardless of whether they obeyed or not. And so in Genesis, we see God's people go from 75 to over a million, not because of their obedience, but because God made an unconditional promise to bless them and to bring them into relationship. What the Mosaic covenant was about was like, it was very conditional. If you do this, then I'll do that. And it was God's way of saying, look, we're already in relationship, but I want more intimacy with you. And the only way to get more intimacy is if you obey. That's what he's saying. If you disobey, I'm not going to kick you out of relationship. But if you want more intimacy, the only way to do it is to obey. And then that's going to spill out into all of your life. And so the psalmist is trying to say, guys, trusting God, submitting to God, obeying God is the best way to live. It's the best way to live. And it's the only path to intimacy with God. Now, I read all that, and I can't help but say to myself, okay, so if that's the standard, delighting in the law of the Lord, not walking in the way of scoffers or sinners, but pursuing intimacy with God through obedience, I go, man, who measures up to that? Like, who's doing that all the time? Who's always delighting in the law of the Lord? Who's always obeying God and pursuing intimacy with God and not getting taken off into the ditch? Certainly not me. Certainly not David, kind of the star of the show. By Psalm 40, David's confessing his sin to God and saying, I'm a wreck. I've sinned like crazy. You get to Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? 
See, reward and the promise of intimacy was not enough motivation to get God's people to obey the Ten Commandments. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Because the laws of God were hanging on the wall through the Ten Commandments. It wasn't on their heart. And their heart was still stuck in rebellion mode. And God's saying, I want intimacy with you. You're my people. But they couldn't get over the hump. There's always a remnant. But for the most part, God's people said, no thanks, God. We're going to do our own thing. And so what does God do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, man, you flip through the Bible, you run into characters like David, you run into Solomon, you run into Isaiah, you run into Nehemiah. I mean, these guys, there's a lot of greatness about them, a lot of brokenness, a lot of brokenness. But you run into Jesus, and you're almost waiting for him to screw up. And he never does because he totally delighted in the law of the Lord. Intimacy with the Father was his thing. That's what he based his whole life on. See, Jesus Christ is the righteous one in Psalm 1. Not you, not me, Jesus. Who are you and I in Psalm 1? Mainly, apart from Jesus, we're, we're stuck on the wicked path. Jesus comes... He's the righteous one, but he gets treated like a wicked one. In fact, the Bible says he became sin. I don't think it's just stretched to say he became wicked. So you and I, the actual wicked ones, could become righteous. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so now, now, Jesus looks at you today and he doesn't just say, hey, there's God's law on the wall. If you want intimacy with God, pursue that, delight in that, be all about that. It's the best way to live, which is true. He says, you know what? I'm gonna put myself in you. I'm gonna give you a new heart. I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna be in you, giving you the motivation and the power to actually pursue those things. And the laws went from the wall to your heart. So now you got it in you all the time. And now Jesus looks at every one of us and he says, guys, you gotta trust me. Obedience is the best way to live. It's the best way to live. And so I'm standing here today and I'm telling you that the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him. And what's he gonna do? He's gonna direct your paths. But you gotta trust in the Lord. So you have to obey, and then you get the blessing of God that's relational blessing. It's not a big house and a new car. It's relational blessing. What better blessing is there? So God says, um, with, don't, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So obedience leading to blessing. I was talking with my wife this week about these passages. And she says, she says, you know what, Abe? She says, we have no idea what's on the other side of utter obedience. We have no idea. No idea what's on the other side of utter obedience. And you know what, family? Sometimes when I think, especially in the past, when I think about what it would look like to go all in with Jesus and just say, Jesus, you're with me all the time. I want to hold everything I have with an open hand. I want to live boldly and courageously. You know what? There's some fear there. What's he going to ask of me? 
what's it going to cost me? How painful is it going to be? Am I going to look like a fool? And in the last few years, Jesus has been blowing that apart and saying, you know what? Let's go. Let's go. You have no idea what kind of blessing is waiting for you when you obey Jesus Christ because he's in you. Trusting God and obeying God is the best way to live. My brothers and sisters, if you're teetering this morning on the edge of whether or not you should continue to press farther into obedience and trust, I'm here to tell you it's worth it. And if you're here this morning and and you are either on that path to wickedness, teetering on the edge of it, I want to call you to repentance and I want to say that Jesus Christ and the blessing of knowing him and the blessing of protection from God and intimacy with God and feeling God's love and his presence and his peace and his power in your life, there's no greater blessing you could ever have. And today would be a great day for you to say, Jesus, I surrender to you. I submit to you. I want to follow you, obey you, trust you. Come live in my life and lead me, please. And we're going to come to the table and remember Jesus, the one who makes all of this possible. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he lived the life we could never live and died the death we should have died so that he could come and live in us and motivate us and empower us to live in this kind of way. Before we go to the table, however, we're going to sing a song. Band, if you want to come on up. We're going to sing a song. And during this song, you're going to have a couple options as to how to engage it. You can stay right where you're at. You can sing or listen, not sing. If you want to, that's fine. I would encourage all of us, as many as are led by the Spirit right now to do this, at the very least, ask yourself, is there anything in my heart that, that is hindering me from total trust and obedience in God? And you know what? He loves you right where you're at. He knows right where you're at. He's not, he's not mad or disappointed, but he does want to woo you towards greater intimacy and trust with him. That's what he wants to do. So just go, man, is, is he calling me further up and further in? Is that what he's doing in me right now? If there's some of you who want to pray with somebody about that because there's some kind of response that you feel God's leading you to, like, man, I want to say again I'm committed to Jesus. I've been teetering on the edge. I need help. Or if you say, I don't even believe in Jesus, but I want to. There's going to be a few of us out on the, out on the edges here ready to pray. So if those of you who are used to praying with folks can move as soon as we start singing, that'd be great. And then after the song, we'll come back and we'll get our communion elements together and remember Jesus that way. But please use the song uh, time to meditate, reflect, get prayer if you need it. All right, let's stand together. Jesus, thank you that you are the righteous one who lived the life we can never live. You're the one who delights in the law of the Lord. You're the one who prospers in all of your ways. You're the one whose leaf never withers. And I'm so grateful that now, through the good news of the gospel, you can come and live inside of us. I thank you for the new covenant. It's better than the Mosaic covenant because the law gets written on our hearts and you give us the power to obey and you give us all the blessings of intimacy with you. So speak to us now, Holy Spirit. Move move us to, to get prayer if we need prayer. Don't let fear stop us. Move in these moments in Jesus' name, amen.